Welcome to Rusty Radio. This is Alex Newman doing our newest podcast. This week, uh, we have a bunch of guests discussing DevTools. It's a very technical conversation, but I hope you will enjoy it. Um, In the meantime, the news. So Rust 1.2 was released. Hooray! Um, There's a lot of cool things going on there. We'll link to the specifics of the 1.2 release on our show notes. In addition, since we last talked, Rust Camp happened, and it was great. It was a sold-out show. Um, we'll definitely link the slides and the videos for Rust Camp, and uh, I'll um, try to uh, eventually get a guest on to break out some of the best talks. Um, one of the most exciting things about Rust Camp is um, we were able to get a lot of support for diversity tickets. So um, we, you know, are trying to make Rust more diverse, and. Uh, people are throwing their money where their mouth is. Uh, I even threw some money down, but I forgot to get my own personal ticket, so I did not attend Rust Camp, sadly. Um, so, more from the news. Um, we can now embed C++ directly in Rust. Uh, check out the Rust CPP package. Um, we'll also provide links to all of the tools that we reference on this show. Uh, Cargo now has a subcommand for displaying when your dependencies are out of date. Um, which is super exciting. Managing dependencies is always a pain. The more tooling support we can have to support it, the better. Finally, Rust is getting much better SIMD support for all your performance goodness. So the SIMD instructions are um, instructions that arrived mostly originally for multimedia in Intel um, for dealing with, you know, more complex instructions, larger word sizes. Um, But we're starting to see these SIMD instructions used more and more in general programming. In fact, some of my database bros are uh, currently trying to build databases which use the SIMD instructions to get higher performance. Um, So today, as I said, we'll be discussing DevTools. We've got uh, Christian from the GNOME Project, Nathan from Adam, and Phil Dawes of the Racer Project, all to talk about Um, all sorts of things in the development atmosphere and of course also development tools in Rust. I hope you enjoy. Have a good one. Next to us, seated between us, uh, Christian. Yep. Christian what? Uh, Herkert, and I am just a longtime free software contributor, primarily to Linux and desktop Linux uh, within the GNOME environment, GTK, and, and that, type of, that type of stuff. Yeah, and I was introduced to you by my canonical friend, Rob Carr. So yeah. props to, shout out to Rob Carr. Yeah. Rob was awesome. And then we also have here today, Nathan. Nathan Sobo. Sobo. Right. Hey, I'm Nathan Sobo. Um, work at GitHub on Atom. Adam, great. Which is the text, and then we have Phil Dawes. Uh, hi, yeah, I'm Phil Dawes, and uh, I'm on this podcast because um, I uh, I have a project called Racer, um, and and I'm from the UK. Yeah, I'm sure if you've used any kind of Rust tooling at all, you've heard of Racer, or at least you've benefited from it indirectly. Oh yeah, Christian, we we brought you in here to talk about this. IDE that you've been uh, working on it sounds super cool, um, but you know, I'm, I'm curious about your experience in open source in general, how you got here, why in God's name you're crazy enough to embark on this journey of developing a, a GNOME IDE. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, I got into free software. I got bitten by, uh, as Andy Hertzfeld would say, I got bitten by the free software bug in the late 90s. And um, I was still a young, not even a teenager. And I installed Linux on the family computer and destroyed everything. <laughs> and it, it kind of all started from there. So, you know, being a, a young adolescent, not knowing how to use a computer that well, uh, I needed a graphical environment. And this new desktop came about right at the same time called GNOME. So I you know, learned how to use IRC, hopped on the IRC channel, and uh, met this very prolific programmer named Miguel de Acasa. And he, uh, he was nice enough, really, to kind of like help guide me through IRC, through like learning programming and all that. So spent a lot of time working on the Mono project, on GTK and Glib and, and the, the GNOME desktop environment. I've been doing that for, uh, wow, almost 15 years now. So in, doing, in this entire time, you know, I've been in Vim, you know, or some <laughs> other terminal, and it's felt, you know, like the, the, the rate at which your terminal updates text is not exactly the most interactive, even yeah. with the best terminal emulator, right? VT100 at some emulated rate. Uh, so I really wanted some really high quality tools. We have better tooling now to introspecting the languages you're writing it. I wanted better auto-completion. I wanted better auto-indentation. I wanted all these different things, and I wanted it to be as beautiful as the product we're trying to create in GNOME in general. So that largely meant we need a designer, a UI designer. And, and that's difficult to integrate into, say, like another IDE, because the drawing model, integrating toolkit drawing, drawing models is actually quite difficult. You know, we need a surface to be able to draw our widgets on and all of that. And, you know, say you're in a Java-based IDE and trying to, get, you know, merge a C-based drawing toolkit onto a Java-based surface is not exactly the easiest thing in the world. Uh, and the tooling has gotten so good around us that uh, if, it seems like building an IDE is no longer quite the Herculean task that it used to be. Hmm. So, you know, set out. I'm a C programmer. It's in C. I hope it's not in C forever. But... Um, you know, we can build a really modern, fast IDE that serves us in GNOME for writing GNOME software. That means auto tools, that means GTK, that means C, Vala, JavaScript, Python, um, hopefully Rust. I'm really looking forward to the Rust GTK bindings. And maybe even someday we can write Builder in Rust using GTK uh, and, and slowly uh, migrate to that all things impossibility to this uh, C interrupt with Rust. So yeah, sounds great. Um, so we're going to get all back to that, but I'm going to continue to go around. Um, Phil, uh, we already talked a little bit about how you got involved in Racer, but I'm curious if you could give. I mean, you must have learned something to enable you to do this. Uh, so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your background and why, in God's name, you decided to build, if not, I guess, one of the most important dev tools for Rust right now. Yeah, for enabling other tools that exist, it's certainly incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, so I, I got into open source like almost the same way. Like back in the early days of, um, of GNOME, I was, um, I, I got interested in, uh, actually I, I was interested in Corber at the time, which is a bit, uh, is a bit odd, but um, they, um, the GNOME project had a, um, a Corber orb called Orbit, and, and I did some work on that, and I also did the C++ version of that back in the day. And, uh, and I've been sort of writing open source software in the background, like here or there, ever since. Um, I've programmed in Python for a while. Um, I got into Rust about two years ago. Um, 
mainly because uh, I was interested in it from the perspective of my work. Um, I worked from a, uh, for a Chicago trading firm um, in the London office. And um, the, uh, the work that I'm involved with is, uh, is in futures trading, which is kind of a low latency, um, like a high performance environment. And the software has to be fast and it also has to be safe. And so uh, Rust was really attractive from that point. Um, you, you mean it's bad when your high frequency trading algorithm crashes and starts, or starts doing uh, invalid trades? That's not a good thing? Uh, well, no, that's yeah, that's certainly not a good thing. But in general, like any software that interacts with a uh, an exchange, has to be uh, has to be reliable and fast and uh, and safe, and uh, and Rust like ticks all those boxes. Very cool. Um, so, but uh, like two years ago, uh, Rust really wasn't ready for the prime time, and so uh, so I needed a, a project to um, to learn the language and. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if Rust had autocomplete features? And so, uh, so I started trying to build uh, a tool to provide that. Very cool. Um, sweet. Uh, keeping a go around the table. Uh, so Nathan Soho, uh, I guess you know the drill at this point. I'm curious, uh, you know, what's the story behind GitHub Atom? It's kind of had this star rising success recently, and and I'm I'm curious. Why you decided to write an IDE in JavaScript? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that is right. I mean, the story—it's interesting. You asked um, about like how did you get involved in open source, and I haven't actually had a ton of involvement in Linux or any huge open source project. But the big thing that I basically the only thing prior to Adam that I'd ever done in open source was just my own project, um, and it was this parser generator called Treetop that uh, I wrote for the Ruby community. Um, and that was based on this experience of working for this professor right after college, and he wanted me to take all these like first-order logic models of grammar for compiling, and like implement them. And so I was trying to parse them with Antler, and just having a hell of a time writing grammars that conform to all the constraints uh, that the grammars were imposing. Um, and so then somewhere along the way, I was reading Lambda the Ultimate and stumbled across this parsing expression grammars formalism. So I thought, oh, Emma, there's an implementation in Java. Maybe I'll give this a try. And it was just like a night and day experience. I wrote the grammars, boom, just flowed right out of me. And so that was like such an impressive experience uh, that I'm like, I, these things are so interesting, these, these parsing expression grammars. Um, they had these really nice properties, like they were composable uh, and really easy to write and really general. Um, so that got me thinking, wouldn't it be cool to build a text editor around this formalism um, so that in the same way that like, you know, Emacs or Vim maybe give you like regexes that you can search around with, uh, you would always have access to the syntax tree, but it wouldn't be really like hand rolled for every language. It would kind of be a general facility that provided that. So I set out to build that um, that text editor, and of course, like started with the most interesting part first, and that was just the parser generator as like a batch parser. And I planned to add incrementality later, and of course, that took way longer than I thought, and life took over for a while, and so that was it. Like I just released that as an open source library. Um, then a few years later, uh, I had an opening, and I felt like, okay, I'm going to start start this again, start this for real. Uh, my plan was always to build an editor in like a low-level language and then extend it with like Lua or Ruby. Um, but I thought it's going to take me years to uh, build this. Uh, maybe I should find like a partner to help me build this. So I went to uh, Chris Wanstroth that started GitHub, and I kind of 
he knew who I was and I knew who he was obviously uh, from the Ruby community before GitHub had started. Um, and I went up to him at their million user party and just pitched them the idea of building this collaborative, uh, you know, syntactically aware, amazing text editor. Um, and then a couple days later we had coffee and he told me they'd already been working on a text editor for like a few weeks at that point. Um, and it was written in web technologies. And I said, are you sure? Web technologies, it's going to be too slow. Um, and he said, uh, you know, it, it's not, maybe it's going to be too slow, but like prove it. Like he's like, if you try to write it and it's too slow, then you can drop it to lower level technologies. Um, but I think the genius insight that he had was that the web as an environment, if you can make the hard things work, the easy things are incredibly easy. It's this incredibly flexible, dynamic, um, approachable, familiar environment for creating software uh, with user interface. Um, and so it makes the easy things easy. And I'm learning, despite my initial concerns, um, that the hard things are definitely possible. We're seeing constant improvements. JavaScript's actually an incredibly fast scripting language. And we do have the option of dropping down to native code on a selective basis. And that's kind of my interest in Rust and how those two might intertwine. Anyway, that's probably enough. All right. About it all. Awesome. So let's back to the top here. So Christian, uh, in GNOME GTK, uh, this kind of like this IDE that GNOME is really interested in, in writing. Can you tell us more about that? Like, Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I put out this flag on the internet. And it was like, you know, we have a lot of C infrastructure in Linux, and it's really important that it gets maintained. So I was like, you know, I will teach someone C so that they can help contribute to this. Just email me, and I'll start teaching you C over the internet. And then the next morning, my inbox had about 500 emails. <laughs> and so what I learned immediately was that we have a huge number of people that want to learn these technologies. They want to contribute. They want to be part of the uh, part of the community, but they don't know how to do so. So I started on this effort called GNOME University, and it was basically I was going to just write all these you know tutorials and and worksheets on you know how to get up to speed on on this tooling, and it was a ridiculous amount of work. And what I found out at the end of the day was that if everything started with me teaching people make and auto-make and uh, how to invoke GCC properly and all of these, like, you know, how to set up their system, how to kit a development environment. Oh, now I need to teach you Vim or Emacs or something, right? Yeah. Or Gedit. And it was just every step was, like, more people that, like, wouldn't make it past that step. Right, so and similar to how we think about startups and building funnels and trying to get the most efi eff efficient funnel possible, uh, I was taking that approach to developer tools. So I knew I needed to build something, and it needed to be as easy as turning on a developer switch on the desktop. You know, similar to what you do on like an Android phone, right? You turn on the developer switch, and now you can develop on your phone. So that's really what I was going for. I needed an environment to teach these people the tools, and it needed to be as painless as possible. That means getting a lot of code insight into it. For example, in a, we're actually really efficient with memory in, in, in Builder. Um, we take a lot of care to packing our structures tightly and keeping them contiguous in memory so we can clean them up and have all of these nice, neat memory features. Uh, in, a, in not much more memory and CPU than a traditional text editor, uh, we have an entire clang in process. Mm -hmm. We're giving you like feedback on every key press, and it's fast, and it's immediate. 
and the interactivity of it, it just it feels good. And for the first time in my career, I feel like I have a uh, development environment that actually makes me smile and not get frustrated and want to throw it at the wall for taking all my RAM or you know being slow or like fragmenting memory or whatever. Uh, so it's just it's just this iterative process of like hate-driven development. Hate -driven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, anything I can do to not throw my computer at the wall at the end of the day is like where I'm headed. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it turns into something useful. You're here first. That's new paradigm. Yeah. <laughs> hey, driven yeah. The uh, so on that, and this is kind of a question for all of y'all. Um, and you guys might, I'm sure y'all have a good answer here. Um, so um, you can start with something like dumb, like a text editor, like um, I don't know if you guys before not not Pico, but before BIM was Tico, uh, and then you know we got actual text editors, and now we're starting to see integrated development environments. But there's a bunch of integrated development environments, and I think we can all say that's a good thing. Um, we're happy that there's lots of different stuff going on. Um, and But a lot of them can kind of share the same uh, infrastructure. So CTAGS is comp, you know, the first one I would think of that's kind of even used in Rust, and, and uh, I think Racer is actually you know, one of these plugins. So the question is, is um, can IDEs kind of uh, decouple these types of plugin uh, type approaches when does it need to be brought into the IDE? I don't know if you guys have had to deal with these issues, what the, the trade-offs are in there. Um, so, Christian, I see you nodding your head, so maybe you should jump in first. We, we definitely took this approach in Builder. One of the initial design uh, tenants was to be multi-process. And to ship the product, we need, like, GNOME ships every six months on the dot. So like we had to take a couple shortcuts to be able to ship on the dot. Yeah. So we brought Clang in process to get the performance we needed for auto-completion and diagnostics. But the goal is to actually pull that back out. We have a, a project called GNOME Code Assistant. And what this is, is a, it's a daemon that runs on your system. And it's actually, it itself is comprised of multiple processes. So you can write the language features in the language that you're supporting, which makes it handy to get like an AST in Python gotcha. while you're in Python. But the C backend might be written in C, linking against libclang, and a Vala backend might be in Vala or whatever. And then we use dbus to communicate with that. So that takes care of making sure that we talk to only one instance of it. It takes care of like race-free initialization of communicating with one of these backends. It allows us to have a long-running process that can hold project information and state between parse requests in the same way that you would want to do in process. Uh, and so it, it really solves a lot of these problems. We need to add features to it, but uh, we definitely took that multi-process approach from day one. Cool. Uh, yeah, uh, Nathan, uh, I know you guys have a really fast-growing plugin uh, system for Atom. I don't, I can't remember. Have you looked at the last time how many plugins you guys have written? And you know, I'm curious how much you want to rely on kind of the plugin architecture, or, or whether or not. And I'm going to bring up some kind of specific, uh, you know, features that I'd like to see in y'all's IDs, maybe, um, and figure out whether or not it's a plugin. Where do you guys kind of draw that line there, and, and how do you how do you achieve it? So our philosophy, first and foremost, is to really think of Atom, at least the core of Atom, as this sort of environment to be kind of duct tape between a lot of different subsystems, things like Racer, things like the out-of-process uh, thing that Christian is talking about. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, like, the big the idea, core, the idea is that the core of Atom should be this sort of framework that's familiar and approachable and easy for people to get in there and 
strap it to some autocomplete system that exists already because they already know JavaScript and they can just do it quickly. Um, so the big idea is really just to be the kind of nucleus at the center of this community that can kind of fan outward and repeat this process over and over again where, like for example, our autocomplete system, we had a simple one that we built in at first, uh, then some members of the community forked that and improved the UI in a lot of different ways, made it pop up, allowed you to do like out of process completions, a bunch of different things, and then they exposed an API to that, which then a bunch of people plugged into. So really like I don't, think of Atom as an IDE. It's more of like a lightweight text editor with the, like basically with all the tools at your disposal to kind of customize it into the IDE that you may want. Um, but a big problem that I've always had with the kind of IDE mindset is this idea that the developers of the IDE sort of centralized everything and it was kind of delivered to you from on high. I, that was a problem I always had with JetBrains. As blown away as I was with a lot of the things that JetBrains products could do, when I tried to kind of take it off-road, like when I used their Ruby product and RSpec upgraded, suddenly I was lost because it was really difficult to get into their system and figure out what was going wrong. Um, so I really wanted something that felt like a hackable core at the center of a bunch of other things that could kind of combine together in, into my own solution. No, that makes sense. Um, so um, on the note of plugins, so we, we have Phil, who, who I think is, he might be feeling neglected over there. And uh, I thought I thought it would be cool to figure out, you know, since we've been talking about pluggability, someone who's built a, a plugin for us. So Phil, can you, once, I know we talked a little bit about this before, but if you could talk a little bit about what is uh, Racer, um, how people might use it, and maybe a little bit more on why in God's name you decided to, to go on this project. And um, there's probably some interesting points along, um, you know, what is an AST and, you know, what is the, the input and output of this racer program look like? Okay. Um, so it's interesting uh, listening to you uh, both talk about the IDE thing because racer probably Im implements that whole plugin thing uh, a little bit poorly at the moment. It, it kind of does just enough to be able to to, to be plugged in, um, but pretty much everyone who's actually like tried to plug it into an IDE or a, a, a long running uh, program isn't like completely satisfied with the way it works. Um, currently, it's a a, a standalone uh, command line style uh, binary that you run and you pass it um, the uh, you have to have written all of your uh, source code to disk and then you pass it the file name and the uh, the line number and the uh, column that you're trying to uh, um, get some uh, completions on or if you're navigating around the code and you're trying to find the definition of a uh, of a type or something like that you say um, you would run racer and pass it find definition here's the coordinates and here's the file name of the uh, of the file I'm currently editing and then it all it it, it runs and uh, print and uh, prints the things to standard out and then the IDE or editor has to pass that and uh, and jump to the right place and um, they the the main issue with that is the saving the files each time, and the um, and and also uh, people are concerned that the um, running a, a completely new binary each time um, is is isn't going to work long term with regards to performance. Um, so I think like Racer at some point will uh, will be a long lived process, and I think it's going to have to be um, when it integrates more with uh, with Rust. 
uh, with Rust C. Sorry, sorry, I've got uh, I've probably um, jumped ahead of myself a bit. Uh, do you want me to talk about no, Racer? No. In, I mean, in one general, of the nice things, one of the nice things about the recycling is that, or the the running a process is that you kind of get you know garbage collection for free, if you will. Uh, for for us, having these really long processes, a compiler that's running in a single process over and over and over again really fragments memory in the same way that like web browsers fragment memory. So yeah. having the ability to recycle that, that's another reason we tried to push stuff out of process with Builder, is that if we ever have a, you know, have a program that's been running too long and it's getting unwieldy, we just kill it and then restart it and we're good to go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe there's, there's some middle ground. Yeah, there's definitely some upsides to also. Um, I I deliberately didn't do any caching in uh, in Racer, um, and each time there's been performance issues, I've tried to optimize um, like the 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 clean run rather than caching bits of the AST and that kind of thing, um, and that's worked out quite well so far. Um, but the there's definitely complexity advantages to not running a long running process as well. You don't have to worry about keeping things in sync, um, and you don't have to worry about um, like um, you don't have to worry about leaking memory and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I, I suspect, I mean, um, I, I talked a little bit earlier, um, and I don't know whether I should repeat this now, about the um, uh, um, what Racer does now and what it needs to be able to do in the future. Um, yeah, and in the future... Ahead. Sorry? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, do you want me to do you want me to like talk about the whole thing, or do you want me to pick up from where I did before? Say say what you think is necessary for the context. So. Okay. Cool. Um, so uh, so at, at the moment, um, Racer does its own type inference, and it, and that's basically rolled in a sort of ad hoc way. Um, so it, it reads um, where you are in the current file, and it tries to figure out from there. Uh, what the types are of the uh, of the elements around it, so that it can offer you methods and field completions and that kind of thing. And that that turns out to be a, a really tough problem, especially in a language as um, as uh, as big as uh, as Rust has become, uh, with generics and uh, an implicit coercion and, uh, and dereferencing and that kind of thing. Um, so, I longer term, I'm uh, going to stop doing the uh, the ad hoc. Um, type inference, and my plan is to uh, leave uh, the uh, the Rust C compiler infrastructure to to do that type inference for me, which um, which sounds like a reasonable um, thing, but uh, unfortunately, um, Rust C isn't really the right shape to do that kind of thing at the moment. It's designed to just uh, take a, an entire crate of code and compile it from start to finish and spit out uh, the code at the end. And it hasn't. Um, it's not really designed to do any sort of incremental um, updating or incremental compilation. Um, so we're going to have to work around that. Uh, I suspect. The way we're going to, I'm going to end up doing that is to run the compiler, uh, keep a, a large copy of the abstract syntax tree in memory and the uh, the type checking side tables, and attempt to patch those on the fly as um, as the, uh, the the files are edited. Which which is a bit unfortunate. If I could get away with not doing that, um, then that would be great. But I, I don't think there's any other way at the moment. So unfortunately, it's going to Racer will become a long running uh, process at some point. Bill, I, I did have one quick question. Um, one of the things, so you mentioned that you need to save the file to disk and everything. Uh, yeah. One thing that we do for 
our code assistant stuff is we do save the file to disk, but we save it either using otemp file on Linux and doing a file descriptor pass, or which yeah. means it's like an anonymous page in the buffer cache, right? Or we yeah, do okay. a um, we save it into like a temp file, and then we tell the compiler tools that this is where the file is, but this is the file you should treat it as. Yeah, that makes a lot. Do of we sense. have the ability to do that with Racer? Um, uh, not as it stands, but it's not a particularly big change. I mean, it's, it's, there's like a whole bunch of little things like that that could be made better. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a good approach. Uh, the other option yeah. uh, that somebody uh, mentioned, so the, it would need to run on Windows as well as Linux. Um, so, so we'd need to do uh, something that was uh, uh, cross-platform to a certain extent because uh, there, there are quite, yeah. quite a few people that um, run it on Windows. Yeah, if I just had the ability to, to, to say this is the file name that it is and this is the file name that I want it to be um, treated as, then I basically have everything I need to do to put it in GNOME Code Assistance. Yeah, that yeah, that doesn't sound very difficult to add. Um, yeah, at the moment you can't do that, but um, yeah, that that shouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, Christian, how are you hand? I'm curious, Christian, how you're handling the like incrementality. I've been reading a bunch of papers on it just in my spare time because I think it's an interesting thing, both incremental parsing and layers up the stack. Obviously, it's of interest to anybody building tools like what we're building. Um, what do you guys do for that? Well, since I'm focused primarily on C today, like the first thing we're doing is doing C and C++ really well and then moving forward from there. Um, I have uh, basically Clang does this for you. You create a C index and then you tell it instead of like parsing from scratch, you tell it there's like a Clang reparse translation unit and you give it all of the dirty buffers you have. And it knows how to intelligently say, I'm going to like do incremental parsing on this translation unit and this translation unit, but I'm going to reference all of the other ones of the included headers and everything. From what I've right. read, translation unit so quite fast. You were saying, Phil? Sorry, I was um, I was just asking what a translation unit is. Is that like a, a .o file, the equivalent, or? Yeah, yeah, basically, um, right. but not necessarily spit out to disk. So it's right. like it's like post AST, it's post like type resolving, but it's right. pre object writing. Okay. And so you do that entire translation unit as a unit, though. Like you don't diff the text and update the tree with like node reuse or things like that. No, I mean, you, I mean, you're talking about like a grammar. Like at that point, it's like a it's a compiler front end, right? And you're dealing right. with everything that's already in memory. That like doing the diff would be more work than just reparsing the entire grammar. Right. Just do it. And you know, we get that. Like I think I was getting down to like. Uh, like live error, like as you type error underlines and like diagnostics with Clang to like under 50 milliseconds. So like if you're really careful about the whole thing, you can you can still get incredibly good speed. Now if you're doing it every key press, you're going to burn a lot of battery. So yeah. we try to be intelligent about that and not kill all the polar bears. <laughs> <laughs> so so this kind of a, leads me to an interesting point. Um, with C C++, it sounds like we're leaning a lot on Clang. Uh, other tools are going to be le having lean on things more like Racer to do a lot of this stuff. Yep. Are there actually like standards of what these tools are supposed to look like? I mean, it seems like you know it would be great if I wrote something, it worked in Vim and Gnome Builder and Emacs and Atom and I don't know, uh, Phil. Have you? Do you know? Because I know that you at least theoretically work with Vim, Emacs, and I've used you on Atom, so it definitely works. 
Um, so do you have an idea there, or is it just you had to do the glue? Um, so basically, we've been doing the glue ad hoc. There is a, um, a project which uh, spun out of Vim uh, called You Complete Me, which um, I, oh. which kind of kind of provides some sort of middleware. I've never actually used it, but a lot of people seem to really like it, and um, and there's been lots of uh, enthusiasm about trying to get uh, Racer into uh, You Complete Me. And and from my like vague understanding of it, it's it's it looks like pretty much a, a middleware for that kind of thing. Like you, uh, you write your uh, interface to you complete me, and it deals with the the sort of semantic back end bit. Um, so, I mean, from that perspective, uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that um, that it handles around, like starting up processes and like making sure that they're they're running and the uh, the communication path between the editor. So it may be that something like that becomes a de facto standard over time. But I, I wouldn't know whether you complete me would be that or whether some something else will come along. But it, it sounds like something that there's a there's a gap for kind of thing, especially if people are building more and more editors. But it really like I just the whole notion of ad hoc to me like plays exactly into I guess our philosophy with Adam, which is just I don't know, you can get a lot of like I think Racer is a great demonstration from the conversation we had earlier of just how much you can achieve uh, with ad hoc approaches and with you know ad hoc communities of people forming around ad hoc approaches um, and just kind of developing standards as they go. Uh, that's yeah, that's really our approach in a nutshell is just, Throw more people at it. Throw more minds at the problem. Uh, get more people involved. That's cool. Um, so yeah, I, was, I was just looking up a Linus quote. There's something like, don't ever make the mistake you can design something better than what you get from ruthless, massively parallel trial and error with a feedback cycle. Exactly. It's, it's like not that beautiful, but it is surprisingly effective. And like, there's this great allegory that I always think of. I think I, someone told it to me, or I don't know where it came from, but the... Uh, it was like the Panzer tank, the Tiger, the German Tiger tank versus the Sherman. And the Tiger right. tank was this amazing tank, right, when the turret had an anti-aircraft gun mounted inside of it because that's what they knew could, like, puncture the Soviet tank's armor. Um, and if you were up against a Tiger tank, you were screwed. Um, and a Sherman versus a Tiger was hilarious. But the Shermans were uh, simple. They were small. They were easy to manufacture. We had an amazing, like, manufacturing economy behind them. So we just made more of them. Uh, and, you know, we sent four or five against one tiger and they were expensive. They broke down in the field. I mean, you can take the analogy too far, but I just like the idea that large numbers of simple things uh, can sometimes be effective. Nathan, I actually have a, a question for you on the Atom stuff is like one of the things I find often with plugins and plugin based architectures is that inevitably code changes. And right. I, I saw this extensively inside of Mono Develop and some other IDEs that I worked on. Um, and you have all of these plugins, and I guess you see this in Vim a lot too, and the plugins change, or these dependent things change, and we don't have any sort of you know, static compilation in this or ability to determine deprecated features. And you know, Atom itself is going to change as you learn from what you've done in the past and what works better. And, and like, how do you expect to keep plugins working long term or reduce the necessity of people to continually track upstream and track all of the other you know plugins that they're depending on right it already sounds like some of them are like three plugin dependencies deep 
Um, well, so far it's worked pretty well. Again, a pretty ad hoc approach, which is just use semantic versioning. Now that's just a human contract, uh, but it works actually pretty well. So we've had, I mean, the first version of Atom that we put out honestly was a little bit rushed and there were some API decisions that we made in there that we just couldn't proceed with. Like they were not efficient. Um, they were mistakes, quite honestly. So, but I don't know, we were able to, like we're right in the process now of having deprecating a bunch of old APIs. Like the switch will flip tomorrow basically in terms of not loading packages that use those APIs anymore um, and then we'll be removing them. But since we've stabilized our API, really nothing has broken. Maybe we've had a regression here or there that was accidental and like fixed a couple hours later. Um, but semantic versioning is surprisingly effective at just communicating this is what you can expect from, from this API. This is how it's changed. Um, so, you know, it's doing that and then, of course, small, trying to keep our interfaces small. So uh, a big piece of that is not trying to expand core too much more. And then we've introduced this concept of services, which is just basically like a semantically aversioned API endpoint. And so someone can expose from their package. And we're also exposing a few from core for experimental APIs, uh, a semantically versioned service endpoint. Um, now, as they move their version numbers, they can just add at runtime additional versioned endpoints. And that gives time, like plugin authors that are on older versions, the ability to just talk, you know, to this shim, you know, to the new API exposed on the old versioned endpoint. Um, and so far it's working. I mean, we'll see what happens. Maybe it'll, you know, boil in its own entropy, but I feel like it's going to work. And so far it's working and people are remarkably adept at, uh, communicating with each other and coordinating around these things. I, I think the Rust project is a, a really interesting example of that. Because that, if there's ever a project that should be boiling in its own entropy, it's been like the changes in the language in the last sort of two years. Like I, when I started writing Racer, Rust was a completely different language. Like it had completely different syntax. It had different ideas about garbage collection and threading. And, and the, the libraries were changing. Uh, I'm like six six months ago, the libraries were changing like every week. Like I, there, if you if I if I released a racer on Monday, it, it wouldn't work with the compiler by Wednesday. And a um, couple of things happened. People sort of rallied around fixing stuff, um, and they 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 got more and more adept at fixing things as well. Like the uh, the number of people that patch stuff in Racer and um, and then would then go on to patch similar things in uh, in the other projects was I, I found that really remarkable that people would would keep up and and put the effort in to fix things up. So I I, I suspect it's easy to underestimate how um, how much of a problem the breakages are, um, how or how little of a problem the breakages can end up being when you have a when you have a community that's sort of motivated to keep things up to date. But that said, like, I'm very paranoid about breaking anything because obviously, like, it's a huge decision to break an API. Um, yeah, so. yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I'm just curious because, like, I, I don't feel that some languages have the tools to determine, you know, that obviously the, the difference between an API and an ABI as well. Is right. The tools to be able to determine whether or not you did break it before you shipped it. And, uh, you know, like, also, what we have today, like all of our projects are very, very young, right? We haven't had the opportunity to break plugins over 20 years like Vim has. So I, I'm also curious at like how right. we all go about dealing with this long term. 
Yeah, I think static typing would be a huge help, quite honestly. I mean, when I rolled up on the Atom project a few weeks in, the language was already chosen, and I wasn't about to argue that as the most important point. I wanted to build this text editor. Um, that said, like, I don't know, a dynamic language, like when you change the API, you know you're changing it. Uh, tick the version number or don't do it. But you know, at the, as, as we scale up, obviously having a static interface would be nice. Um, but again, TypeScript or you know, Facebook has a static typing extension for JavaScript out. Uh, those signatures can be easily imposed upon our API. I don't know if anybody's done it yet. Um, so there is like a migration path uh, toward like a little bit more of a rigid uh, boundary. But so far, the dynamism hasn't posed a problem. And I think there's a route away from it if it does. I think that's largely just because of our the age of our projects is, is what I'm arguing. The um, the ability to deal with this long term is more of some of it can be dealt with convention, right? And one of the things that helps us in GNOME is that like we have a giant Git repository of everybody that's you know using these libraries. So it's pretty often when we do accidentally or do on purpose break an API or an ABI that like we search everybody that out there that's using it. We use like all of the open source search tools we can get on the internet to determine whether or not we break things. And that's something I know that we need to make easier for people to be able to do. And it's something that's just harder in dynamic languages. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Whether or not someone used it, right? That's actually a thing yeah, that Rust yeah. do. So we have Crates.io, which is our central package repository that you can upload Crates to, totally public. And whenever uh, they release a new version of the compiler or have like, you know, like once a week or so, uh, they want to test to make sure they haven't regressed in stability. So they run the new version of the compiler against the entire ecosystem, and they see, like, you know, what compiled last week? What isn't compiling this week? Did we accidentally break something we didn't mean to? And so it's a really great tool for checking. I, actually, awesome. on that, actually, on that, uh, if you go to this podcast webpage, which we still have to come up with a name for, so uh, be prepared for that. Um, <laughs> this podcast webpage actually links to a site that has everything that's marked as Rust and Travis. And uh, we'll actually test everything that's Rust and Travis against Nightly. Is that Rust CI? Yeah, yeah. yeah Rust CI. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we're linking to that as well. Is that the same thing you were talking about? Or? Um, well, no. So what I'm talking about is actually a tool that was built by one of the Rust developers, uh, Brian Anderson, yeah. uh, just for use by Rust themselves. Because not, not, not every package of Rust.io is on Rust CI, I'm guessing. Yeah. And so it's kind of we want to download everything once in a while and like, run it ourselves. Because also, Travis CI didn't have unstable builds of the compiler as well. So. Yeah, it's kind of just like at our leisure, we can check to make sure that we didn't accidentally break an API. Because a lot of actually, this was useful a lot in the Rust 1.0, like before 1.0 came out, uh, to kind of figure out where are the holes in our stability story. Because at one point it was like we realized that, uh, for example, if somebody had warnings turned into hard errors, and then like we added a new warning, that that broke their code. And it's kind oh, of like these like your things. It's like oh man, that's a breaking change. That's a breaking change. So it was very instructive, and it is helpful to have this. Uh, these kind of type systems, but also we need policies as well, like Semver and also community contracts that say, hey, you know, when is it cool to break things? Like, you know, even if you can break things, should you, you know, consider your users as well? Never so, so. compile production code with WR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, uh, oh man, like uh, social problems solved with social solutions, God forbid. Oh my God. The funny thing is, is like the, so the JavaScript answer to like not having types, right? Um, was, oh shit, we don't have types. Well, why don't we just watch how the code runs? Um, and we can kind of infer the class of everything as the code runs um, based on these like crazy complex transition graphs. And 
then we can you know jit the co the hot sections of the code down to machine code and kind of compile it as we go and the funny thing is is like because we have a dynamic language we have to kind of take the same approach to uh questions like the ones you're asking so like we deprecated a bunch of our apis now linux fans are probably gonna like pick up a pitchfork and put it right through my heart but like uh, <laughs> adam tells you like this the first time you open adam it tells you um hey we're collecting some really general analytics on what's going on um, if you want to inspect the source code of the package that's collecting the analytics here it is if you want to disable it go for it but enough of the people that use adam leave that on so we were just able to collect you know a massive number of just dynamic traces of what packages are still using deprecated APIs? Let's get in touch with those package authors. Let's ping those people. Let's try to round them up. And then finally, any packages that are left using deprecated APIs at the end of this, like go through the list, suggest alternatives. Now I know some of this may not scale as the ecosystem gets big. I guess we'll have to see what happens. Um, but I, you know, there's dynamic solutions to dynamic problems uh, and it's maybe not as elegant, but it works. Oh, that sounds great. Um, so now this is part I really wanted to talk to you guys about, mainly so I can pawn off the ideas and things that I want into y'all's respective uh, projects. Um, so uh, unfortunately, I've had to do a lot of Java coding in my life. and uh, But the good part about that is using great tools like IntelliJ. And um, I don't know if any of y'all have used IntelliJ recently, um, but it does stuff like automatic uh, exception case expansion, It'll actually, um, if you have a bit of code that can be replaced, let's say, by a Lambda, it'll just shadow it and automatically write it as if you had written a Lambda. Um, now with C++ uh, 11 and now 14, these types of things may actually start becoming uh, possible for, you know, doable in C++. Um, obviously, Rust has things like pattern matching, which could be potentially auto-expanded. Um, well, starting off with Phil, uh, Phil, do you think this, any of this stuff could be the purview of Racer, or should we be looking at building other tools? And then finally, for the IDE authors, is this the type of thing that plugins could be doing, or is this something that's kind of the purview of the IDE itself, or both? Um, okay, so um, I think that, um, I, to be honest, I don't really mind how we get there, but I definitely think that, um, that that kind of stuff is something that we need in race in uh, rust and i think that racer may be like a, a a good tool to build that from at the moment i'm focused on getting the type inference good so that completion can work well and uh and jumping around code can work well but um i i use um intellij quite a lot um and uh, and i also like the uh, especially the uh, the java 8 features um uh, and the conversions from Java 6 code to Java 8 code and, and suggesting lambdas and method um, uh, um, extension methods and that kind of thing. So um, so yeah, I think I think that uh, one, with a with a decent semantic like type inference um, engine running, then those those kind of uh, tools should be easier to build. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe Razor will uh, will provide that at some point soon. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I think. I think basically, once we're over the hump of uh, of being able to um, to get semantic information and uh, an abstract syntax tree out of the um, out of the code uh, and out of sort of slightly incomplete code, then I, I suspect the rest of it falls out re reasonably easily. Cool. That sounds good. Um, yeah. I
I have to admit, my experience with IntelliJ kind of feels like I write a tiny bit of code and then just press control space and all done, and the rest of it happens somehow. <laughs> yeah, it, it really sucks. Uh, you, try, you try and go to an interview, someone asks you like something about Java, and like I can't even remember whether it's import or include. I use that stuff down. Because <laughs> you just type it, and then it says, do you want to import it? <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, it doesn't even ask you. <laughs> like, you just, uh... I work with this amazing guy, um, Christian Williams at Pivotal, and I just remember sitting down as a pretty new programmer to IntelliJ with this guy. And it was like, rather than watching someone typing code, it was like watching someone sculpt code. You know, he would take an instance method and make it a static method and then extract parameters and then move it to another class, then drop it back down to an instance method. Like, I remember that little trick. I was like, wow, that is... So yeah, automated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you when you write in IntelliJ, you write stuff the opposite way around. Like you, you very rarely start with um, with like the the variable name and the thing. You you start with the thing that you're trying to call, and then you uh, you like extract a variable out of it, and then like you you make that a parameter. And it's yeah, it, you you tend to program a slightly different way around. I think. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I don't think this has much place in C. Um, but in C++ or languages like Java, and I'm guessing Rust, there's a lot to be done here. There's a caveat, which is something you hinted at before, which is uh, sometimes the names that it provides might not be the best names. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes we all get lazy, so, so maybe there's, there's like a middle ground. But um, uh, jumping over, uh, Christian, I, I'm sure you, you hear all this talk of Java IDs, and you're like, ah, real code doesn't do that stuff. Or... I am not a language elitist. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just, I don't want to be in anyone's language crusade. And, uh, I just happen to be good at C and assembly, and that's what I've spent doing my career. And so, like... I'm not going to stop anytime soon. Mm, so I have better tools to do that. So yeah, yeah. So, but I'm, I'm curious. You know, you guys are targeting C++, which is a very large language. Yeah, I mean, we're targeting it in that like we get it for free from Clang. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not setting out like we write a lot of things in C on Linux because it's the closest language to how the CPU works without writing assembly. Yeah. Uh, and it is really convenient to be able to debug things, at least the type of stuff that I work on. I've worked on like hypervisors and video codecs and sound drivers and like kernels and that type of stuff. It really is nice to be able to debug an assembly sometimes. Yep. So having a language where I can say like this turned into this move and this like shift left and like that's actually useful for me. Uh, I really hope that not everybody has to do that. <laughs> it's kind of a pain in the ass. Yep. It's incredibly but, uh, impressive, yeah. honestly. Uh, to, to be honest, it's surprisingly not. easy in Rust to do that same thing. Yeah, that's actually what excites me about Rust is that um, I think it takes a pragmatic approach to the future and that like C is not really going anywhere and it's impractical to do a flag day that says let's all stop using C. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. to need a language that allows you to continue to make progress, continue to use the huge amount of C code out there, like, do you really want to rewrite a crypto library on day one? Like, no, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really bad idea. But like, maybe someday we can get to the point where we have a crypto library written in a safe language like Rust, interop to C, provide the same API from C, and then use that in Ruby and Python and C++ and still have this like one memory type safe crypto implementation. That sounds like a fantastic idea. And we continue to use C for the interop between this. We use this really heavily in Builder 
the way we built uh, GObject, remember GObject is, is the type system underneath GTK, and it yep. got it today. GTK and GObject started in the GIMP. Yep. So remember, this entire thing came out of a graphics program, right? And one of the big features of the GIMP was that you could write plugins in like any language. So we had to build a type system in C that allowed you to interop with any of these languages. So then we bound it in the last five, six years to automatically binding these dynamic runtimes. So you can write plugins for Builder using JavaScript, using the exact same APIs you would use in C, but speaking in a different dialect of the, of the language, right? You're speaking in the dialect of JavaScript or in the dialect of Python. And all of these C libraries, they're object-oriented, uh, just like you would in any other modern language, and they look and feel just like they were in that language. So we have a really neat future I think we can do by like melding all of these languages together. I'm not here to say this language should win. I'm here to say let's enable all the languages and allow them all to communicate with each other. Do you and see this, the, this is the oh, plugin sorry. model of Builder. Do you see the um, sort of the C interop, the ABI, I should say, like function call convention being kind of the only thing that we ever have forever? <laughs> well, I mean, until you're going to build a new CPU, right? Because right. Intel CPUs and ARM CPUs, the CPU itself is a C calling convention CPU, right? You push things onto the stack and then you jump to the frame, uh, right. jump to the new code with the frame pushed. And that's uh, all you can rely on what, at that level. Well, I mean, oh, okay. yeah, I mean, that is, that, that is how these types of superscalar CPUs were made. That doesn't mean that we're going to continue having those forever, right? The, the new RISC CPUs, RISC V, is coming out. And uh, they're significantly more programmable. It may be possible for us to get to a new CPU that isn't a C calling convention CPU. We could get to a CPU that's a Rust calling convention CPU if Rust decided to create a different calling convention than C. Yeah, I've heard the chip companies are buying uh, a large amount of FPGA vendors as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we may actually. Like Intel bought, what was it today? Yeah. Altera. Altera, that's I mean, it. Broadcom was recently purchased as well. Um, I think these are deals that are on the order of tens of billions of dollars. Yep. Um, and, and certainly, I don't think anyone sees ARM or x86 going away. Um, but people do think that these systems are going to complement in the data center. I'd be super happy if there was a tool chain that was open source, hint, hint, uh, yeah. for that type of stuff. But um, yeah, no, I, I just really don't want my Ethernet card to have DMA access to my RAM. It already does. I think. I, that's my point. And so does, <laughs> so does like you know like what's the hacker's favorite uh, laptop, right? The ThinkPad. Yeah. The ThinkPad's keyboard controller has DMA access, so that it can do the presentation button and change the mode of your monitor. Yeah. So you can write attacks that go in the firmware of the keyboard that are sending packets on the network. Yeah. This sounds like a horrible idea to me. Uh, and something that I hope changes, we're going to have to change the entire way we build computers to do so. Oh, maybe we'll, we're eventually going to do a, one of these as a security podcast. Maybe we'll have you bring you in and you can be the, the, the person helping to, to ground it. So. I can probably give you someone much better than me. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we just want to hear you. Okay, that'd be great. Christian, um, can so, I ask you like a? Can I? Am I allowed to derail this to a slightly like text editor nerdy question for Christian about some stuff? Do we have time for that, or you want to ask some other questions first? I'm <laughs> no, 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 no. You guys definitely drive, drive it. Okay, um, Christian, I'm I'm really curious like what you've learned in all the time that you've worked on IDEs and stuff about uh, like the document representation itself in terms of like. How do you represent folds in an efficient way? Uh, how do you represent like logical markers um, that that hug the content of the text um, as things are being edited? Um, yeah, just curious, like what you've learned 
in, in that process. Um, so yeah, I think we actually have some similar problems to you in this case. And I have a couple different approaches. So we don't have code folding in our primary code base. One of the benefits of doing Builder the way we are is that I do a lot of upstream work. So every time I need a feature, I go into GTK and I add the feature. Like we have full CSS support in GTK, even though we're not a web browser. So we go in and add CSS features as we need them. You know, um, um, so we need to add the code folding stuff to GTK source view, which is the source editor widget we work on. And we have some patches to do this. Uh, because everything for us is a model view split, the GTK text buffer that's behind our editor is a B tree. So we have a very large buffer of the text contents that are getting updated in a somewhat efficient manner. And then all of the tags that are used to highlight portions of the code uh, are in a separate B tree index. So it gives us really efficient access to be able to look up things and, and get them out. Now, the downside to this is that it means we still have to hold the entire file in memory. So I think you guys have this problem as well, and you came up with a similar solution in that you don't allow people to open up text files over two megabytes. Yeah, that's almost done, thank God, because we get so much shit yeah, for that. Yeah, we limit ours to 10 <laughs> megabytes right now. Like, we could do hundreds of megabytes. It would be fine, but, you know, it, it's a really huge memory fragmentation. And the only use case I really see for that is open, opening really large SQL dumps. Or a really right. large code, maybe? Or maybe? I mean, but uh, hundreds of megabytes? Yeah, I guess You I know, see. like, where you actually want code highlighting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if we just had the text open without highlighting, we could probably get away with a couple gigabyte large files. Um, but, uh, you know, I also spent a couple years working on a very large database, and so I'm familiar with doing B-trees, the page to disk and all of that. You just run into a different class of problems. Now, if the file changes behind you, I just I ask if you want to reload the file. Whereas if you're doing a paging system with a B tree that's pageable to disk and you're loading this file in 4K chunks or whatever your page size is and the file changes behind you, you may not have the previous version of that file content. So how do you actually save the file back to disk? I was yep. thinking what you could do is, um, now maybe you're going to tell me exactly what's wrong with the solution, but here's what I've come up with so far. Not implemented yet, of course, but sketched out. Uh, when you open a huge file, copy it to a temporary directory, um, and then stream enough of the file into memory to basically, probably for the entire file, just because we have synchronous APIs, like scan the entire file and build like a positional map. So that accounts for folds, soft wraps, uh, tab expansions, different kinds of indent after soft wraps, things like that, just spatial, but it's all just numbers, so it's pretty compact. Um, but then represent your changes to the file and the little bit that you have in memory as kind of a patch. And so as you're editing, uh, you're basically like mutating this patch representation, um, which you could you know, use a B tree or some uh, similar like balanced tree structure to kind of present this illusion that the entire file is present. Um, but you still have this issue of like needing to page content from disk, but if you've copied it to a temporary file, then you don't necessarily need to worry about it changing out from underneath you. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that works assuming you have enough disk space to do that, or you can right. use, um, uh, you can use, depending on if you have insight into the file system, it's hard to do this in a generic way. You can right. make sure you copy on write changes to the underlying inodes um, and the actual extents. But 
uh, I think they call there's like a there's a term for this. Someone wrote a paper recently on like writing an efficient vim, and it kind of talks about doing this like string piece tree, which is similar to what you're talking about. Um, and it does it does make the updates very efficient and, and compact, but you still need to on demand update tag information, right? Coloring information, all that type of stuff, and that right. you don't want to do the whole thing in a 10 gigabyte log file. Right. Absolutely. And now, now let's add one more layer of complexity to this. Now, what if that log file is also gzip compressed? So now you need to do a pageable B tree with compression mm -hmm. on the fly. Uh, so basically, I'm not going to fix this feature until we can break ABI and GTK to GTK4. And then I'm probably just going to write a proper pageable B tree and try to get the file locks right. Now, on POSIX systems, that's just an advisory lock. Someone can totally still come behind you and uh, destroy the lock. This is even worse if you're on, say, an NFS share, where the entire POSIX advisory locks that you use for NFS files completely don't collide with the POSIX uh, file locks you might use in a, on a local file system. So like, you have to do all of this work to get it right and determine whether or not you're doing things safely. And the closest I've ever seen anyone get to it is SQLite. They actually try to get all of this right, and they don't. Um, so I don't know. At some point, we've got to find some good trade-offs. And right. I don't have the answers today. I just have some ideas of how to do this. And thankfully, I've written pageable B-trees before, so that part isn't going to be too much of, a, of an issue. Oh, man, I'm glad we got you guys together. Um, <laughs> So you uh, store you guys store the, um, the the syntax tags. This is the last question, and then I'll I'll, I'll stop and let you ask. Uh, no, keep, I'm willing to come by to GitHub. I hear you guys have awesome bars. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, my friend uh, my friend refers to GitHub as San Francisco's largest bar, which is not really true, but um, it's kind of a funny joke. We have a, one really nice bar. Yeah, um, it was made by the people that uh, designed the bar for what is the pizzeria that is? I don't I'm not I don't live in San Francisco anymore. It actually um, zero. Zero, zero. Yeah, zero, zero. Um, so yeah, it turned out it turned out nicely. Um, I'm in Colorado ah. actually, but when I'm in uh, when I'm in San Francisco, it'd be great to meet up. I'm sure you could uh, teach me a lot about pageable B trees. Quite honestly, I just wrote um, <laughs> probably my first B tree for the marker index, um, but pretty stoked about it. It's working pretty well. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean that ironically. I mean, it's, it's actually a lot of work to get that yeah. all working right. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, is the B-tree is like this incredibly simple structure. Um, and we had to make like a few tweaks to it, right? Like, so you could stab down into a leaf node and change its dimensions because it's like this spatial tree. Um, so it was really fun to kind of take a standard thing and then adapt it to our specific needs. So now kind of here at the end, I want to kind of ask about uh, potential Rust support in each of these IDEs here. And okay. also, uh, Phil and Racer can potentially be integrated. So I know Phil has mentioned that he has used Racer and Atom, or someone. No, I, I, you I, said, yeah, Alex, yeah. that you used Racer and Atom. And I know you said, uh, Christian, that the builder has this plugin interface. So it would be compatible with Racer, you think? With, uh, I think so, and I actually don't think it's that much work. Um, the hardest part, at least for us with the other languages, is getting things right like C flags, yeah. like a project system where like, I, I need to know where your include paths are and all that type of stuff. My hope is that that's a lot simpler in, in a Rust-based world. Oh. But, but, if, <laughs> but if 
Phil worked on Orbit, he is certainly capable of writing a plugin to GNOME Code Assistance. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the problem with, um, with Rust is the whole cargo uh, infrastructure that, that you pretty much have to rely on now mm -hmm. um, is, is a bit ad hoc. Like it, if the if um, someone's running multi-rust, then that can exist in a whole bunch of places, and you have to kind of replicate the uh, the the search logic that's in multi-rust. And Cargo has its own search logic and that kind of thing. Do you think it'd be worth uh, standardizing this kind of thing? In, in it's it's difficult. To, yeah, I mean, I I'm surprised how good they got Cargo first time. I mean, I guess like Ycats had worked on uh, uh, I can't remember what the Ruby one is, but. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, maybe it's maybe it's baked and done. But like this kind of stuff, I tend to think needs to like have a bit of of time to uh, to run before people can really nail down like what really works well in a particular ecosystem. Right. Yeah, like, I know we do have multi-rust, which is kind of like you know RVM, but no, not necessarily quite necessary because it's compiled language, so you can store in standalone binaries. Uh, but now, actually, so Nathan, I have a question for you. So I know that, like, uh, didn't Adam recently get split up into Electron, which is a, the, the engine for Adam or something? Right. Electron's so basically just a fork of Chrome with uh, an event loop integration that enables all of the Node.js APIs to function. Um, so Node.js is originally, you know, a headless V8 that was ex uh, just ex ran on, you know, ran in a headless environment. Um, and there were a bunch of... Obviously, we had to integrate the event loops and extend Node to support uh, multiple JavaScript contexts, because that wasn't anything that was ever a concern in the headless environment. Um, so that sort of that entire thing, plus a bunch of cross-platform APIs for doing things like application menus and tray icons and all the typical stuff you need to deal with with a native app, that is Electron. Um, all right. I think that Microsoft now has a new editor based on Electron. Is that true? Is that Visual Studio? That is that is true. Yeah. Okay, so I just saw today, actually an hour before, an hour, an hour ago or so, uh, that like just uh, they just released a new release today and it has Rust support, or at least you know, Rust highlighting Ooh. and bracket matching, which is the first tinges of support. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but also I saw yesterday that Servo, which is this new browser engine written in Rust, uh, has just finally uh, started implementing the Chrome Embedded Framework. So ideally it should be a drop-in uh, replacement for Chrome in certain contexts, like. Uh, like Steam, their web browser, their entire like you know interface is all uh, like embedded web interface. And did you see that was on Enlightenment as well? Oh yeah. Did you see that video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Enlightenment is a th that makes me so excited. Like, what did you? <laughs> like I use GNOME, but like you know, <laughs> Enlightenment has been this thing in Linux for 20 years, it's and it's like, is it, is it still Rastaman? Someday and like. It's like, wow, Samsung's actually putting money behind this, and it's a thing. I'm not going to use it, but that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, I'm excited to think that possibly, you know, if you are concerned about speed in Atom or Electron or maybe you know, Microsoft even, like, someday, Servo could be an option because it doesn't tend to be, like, much faster with regard to layout and updating things. So I, just, if... I don't really think that that's going to be the problem. Like, no. using the DOM properly is step one. We were doing some things that were improper when we were first using the DOM. Mm -hmm. um, fixing that has helped a lot. Uh, then there's a bunch of stuff, like CSS selectors that are in there for theme compatibility, so we haven't broken themes over a long period of time, reducing those. We're going to sit down with the people from Google and look at the native traces. Like, I just don't think the DOM 
is going to be the bottleneck that everyone thinks it is. However, right. that said, if Servo integrates V8 because we have a bunch of native V8 extensions and you know in the form of Node libraries, um, and it's faster, then yeah, we'll use it absolutely. Yeah, I mean, on the DOM issue, I don't I don't think that uh, necessarily performance of the DOM is going to be the issue, especially if you're using all of the O1 access operators, right? I think the problem is more of going to be fragmentation caused by lots of little small objects that are slightly different sized, right? So hopefully they're doing, hopefully the browsers are using like a, what the Linux kernel would call a slab allocator, which means like when you're trying to allocate a structure of a certain size, you look at a, like a per thread local cache before you like go allocate more memory. And it really helps bring that fragmentation down. But if like the fragmentation stays under control, then I think you guys are going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah, and like for for now, I mean, I, I bet you fragmentation is probably the least of our worries, right? Like, uh, you know, I think we probably emit too much garbage. V8 is a garbage collected environment, but we're boiling it down to kind of the the fundamental core data structures, like this marker index B tree I'm talking about, or this patch data structure that I'm you know was describing. We can drop those to C. So you know, when you load a huge file, what are there lots of? Well, if you do a search, there's lots of markers or there's lots of lines or lots of tabs. Um, so if we could drop down to C or C++ or Rust, maybe if we could kind of get the tool chain situation with integrating with, uh, with NPM ironed out. Um, for those operations, then in situations where that is a big concern, um, the really intensive parts will probably will drop it down to native stuff. But yeah, yeah. But that said, the DOM, you know, it's it's not going to win like performance awards. Um, but it's gotten remarkably faster even in just the last six, seven months with us doing nothing and then improving our like interaction with it um, and just making sure that we only write to it and never really read from it. Um, and using the GPU in clever ways, like I don't know, there, there's plenty of juice left to squeeze. Cool. Cool. Um, well, I think we're 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 seven minutes past. Um, there's one of the uh, like there's two open questions I think we should do. One of them, and we'll probably go around. Um, one of them is uh, like if you could talk a little bit about other big projects that you're working on right now that you might want to draw some uh, attention to. So um, stuff that we haven't covered. And let's I don't know, Phil. It, it sounds like this may be your 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 main hobbyist project. So maybe a redundant question for you. Um, yeah, that's right. My um, my project over the next few months will be getting um, Rust C working with Racer to do type inference. Oh, cool. Um, is there anything in particular you're looking for for help in terms of Racer, some set of skills that maybe our audience will have that, that will maybe be able to help out? And, uh, and um, also, if you could talk about where they should go if they want to interact with you. Uh, sure. So actually, the the biggest thing that um, I could do with is help with the um, with the Vim plugin and in general, uh, like the Vim community, because most people using Rust seem to be using it on Vim, and I don't really use Vim very much. Although I did cobble together the first uh, the first plugin. Um, so that means that a bunch of issues quite often end up being open for like a few days at a time. And so it'd be really good with if somebody with a, with a Vim background and, uh, and, and opinions on how things should work uh, could come along and, uh, and help out. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, there's definitely people that come and, uh, and help out with, uh, with uh, both Vim and the Emacs uh, plugins, but there's no one really to sort of, to sort of run things. Cool. So that would be really helpful. 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, uh, I'm going to rotate to Nathan, and then we'll finish up with Christian on this question. So, Nathan, how can people help with Adam? And uh, and also, if you if you have any other projects that you're currently working on if you, that you can talk about. I mean, every project that I have is all oriented toward Adam and fits in that ecosystem. So it all just kind of lands under that umbrella. But as for helping out with Adam, I mean, we're really engaged with our community. That's really a high priority for us. So. Uh, if you see a problem, it should be really easy to fix. You can check out our issue tracker for good first bugs. Um, also, hacking on a package to either create some new capability that you want or tweaking an existing thing. It's all we've really tried to focus on making it approachable and accessible. And ping me at Nathan Sobo on a pull request or something if you need help with it, uh, and we will engage. Yeah, I guess uh, Adam is probably developed on GitHub, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Christian? Um, yeah, so right now I'm working full-time on Builder thanks to the crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Sweet. Um, so I expect I'll be doing that through the end of the summer before I go get a full-time gig again. But uh, really, the best thing I think for me that would help me out is I just want to see more people running Linux, and I want to see more people running GNOME. Um, but I'll take it if you just if more people start running Linux. Or not commit to. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I really don't care. Like, as long as you can run the software, like, that would be great. I just, uh, you know, I spent so much of my career working at companies where everybody runs Windows and Mac, and I kind of just want to see more Linux users out there. Like, it's a fantastic platform for development. I can't imagine having a better tool chain anywhere else. And uh, if you're running Linux, then maybe I can ship some software to you. So um, that would be great. You're talking on a Linux machine right I now? I am, absolutely. There you go. That's cool. And um, best way to bug you, IRC, is there? Uh... IRC works great. Email works great. If you are OK with creating a user account on the Bugzilla, like bugzilla.gnome.org, uh, you can file bugs there. You can. I don't care where you file bugs or tell me about them. I'll fix them. But uh, I'm very liberal in what I accept, but I tend to put stuff on the Bugzilla. Uh, instance for GNOME. No, that, that sounds great. Um, and the one final question, uh, and feel free to answer either of these or none of these guys, and just randomly shout them out. Um, so I'm looking, this is uh, questions that we've asked every single podcaster here. So um, for those of you who have looked at Rust and familiar with Rust a little bit, and that may just be fun, that's fine. Um, I'm kind of curious what you think the top reasons, especially like um, a C or C++ programmer might want to look at Rust. And then also, what should this podcast be called? <laughs> Okay. Uh, the, okay. So the top reason I think to look at Rust is um, the uh, memory allocation thing. I think I think Rust has a, a is a real innovation um, in programming languages. The the borrow checker and the ownership rules uh, let you write code in a memory managed environment, but with no runtime overhead, with no um, garbage collector, no no jitting. It's um, yeah. I think that's the reason. No, that sounds great. Okay, um, cool. And I, I like, I'm not super. I've read a ton about Rust, and I can tell you why I'm interested in it. Which is, I come from pretty much a scripting background, uh, Scheme and Lisp, and then Ruby for a really long time, and now JavaScript for a really long time. And I've, you know, become accustomed to the conveniences of scripting. And Rust is really the first language that, to me, seems like it could be as expressive in a lot of situations, or expressive enough in a lot of the situations to give you that feel of writing in a higher level language. Um, but the, the performance promises that um, <clears throat> it has now and that its fundamental design like allows for as things optimize are incredibly exciting. And so that's why I, with 
you know limited super hardcore systems programming experience and really interested in it is that it's a seems like it really makes that all that kind of performance really accessible to me. Yeah, and, and Kuchner, I'm going to ask you a different question. What can I do to trick you into writing more Rust code? <laughs> you know, the, the thing that needs, the thing that I need to spend some time experimenting with is the GTK Rust interop. I see that it exists. I have not played with it yet. But for me, if I can subclass G objects, yep. subclass these C objects from Rust, that allows me, and especially if I can link it into my program, it allows me to piecemeal write new parts of Builder in Rust, which is fantastic. I think that would be a really great way to move forward. We already are interoperating with uh, Vala, which is like a C-sharp language that compiles to C. Yep. And then um, C++ and uh, obviously lots of C libraries. So being able to fit into that, like that for me is the value of, of Rust is this like, Fantastic language, as, as Phil said, like it brings definitely new fantastic concepts to programming languages we haven't had before, and it doesn't issue the old guard that we still need to interop with for the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, so that, I think, is, is a huge value that we don't have outside the Rust community. I love it. Let's unite the clans. Yeah, Let's absolutely. get it done. Right. I know that and nobody, actually, nobody actually tried to answer the question of I have one. Be called. Okay. My, my suggestion is rustic. Rusting. Ooh, that's kind of cool. I like it. And ditto, if you, if, if you want to make Rust interoperate better with V8, uh, I would love to write every single piece of low-level code in it, and it would probably be down your door to do it. Yeah, there, there have been some plotting on this side of the microphone for that, um, so you, you may get your wish, sir. That'd be amazing. Cool. All right, guys, um, feel free to hang on, but I think that's all the questions we had today, unless there's anything else that you guys want to talk about uh, or something that I forgot to ask. Okay, uh, sweet, and if there's anything else you want to add uh, afterwards, we can always post, uh, edit it in. Um, since uh, the remote guys, Phil, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for showing up. Thanks, guys, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And, uh, Show my face at least to say goodbye. <laughs> now that we're not <laughs> Got a face. <laughs> yes, cool. I did. And uh, all right, y'all. Christian, uh, I definitely <laughs> would love to talk to you about um, if you have the time. Honestly, uh, all of all of your sort of architecting of the document and how you track things, etc., uh, would be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that over email or something, maybe. We're coming sure. to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I was basically taking you up on that thought of swinging by GitHub, but yeah, I can definitely email you too. Oh yeah, I'll absolutely do that. Yeah, sure. I'm here in San Francisco uh, for the next month or so. Um, we're also doing a, a GNOME Hackfest here in San Francisco, uh, the 29th to July 1st, and that's where we're going to be focusing really heavily on sandboxing Linux applications. So that's going to be doing things like syscall filters and preventing applications from talking to each other and ripping the file system out from applications that shouldn't be able to see the file system. And, um, so that's going to be some interesting things as well as we all start trying to build more secure, stable, predictable software. We thought this container thing would be such a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's, we definitely use containers, but we take it even further past containers in, in terms of like containers get you one layer, but now we need to build better APIs. Yeah. For example, when you open a file browser, that means your application has access to all those files. Mm. That's probably not a good thing for something you don't necessarily trust, right? Like a picture app, 
maybe you don't want to have to have don't want to have access to your documents. Mm -hmm. So building the right APIs that let us um, uh, move all that stuff around and like let you have a browse file browser that's out of process and then pass the file descriptor over to the process that is working with it. Um, so this is something we're thinking about in GNOME very heavily: is how do we secure people's desktops? Uh, and um, I'm hoping to get into our development platforms as well. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I think it went really well. All right. Cool. Thanks. Great.